From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up... It's been a year since the city of Philadelphia held a groundbreaking hearing on racism in the neighborhood. These things happen to me and continue to happen to young men. The time for change is now. It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. The steps forward and the progress still to come. She helps steer millions in corporate giving. When it comes to funding and philanthropy, a lot of people miss the mark. Three reasons why this young Latina is inspiring those in business and beyond. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is racism in the neighborhood. Philadelphia is one of the country's most LGBT-friendly cities, but in the spring of last year, the decades-old problem of racism in gay clubs snagged headlines. Activists claimed dress codes and profiling targeted people of color. I consistently asked for ID when I would see other people that were white go in without having ID. And then the smoking gun. Video of a neighborhood bar owner spewing racial slurs. Nick, Nick, A year ago this week, the Philadelphia Human Relations Commission held the city's first ever public hearing on racism in the LGBT community. All we wanted to do was just dance. People can finally say, I wasn't making this up. Since that day, so much has happened. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Ian Morrison, who is manager of Taboo, a club in the city's neighborhood, and also the founder of the city's first LGBT mummers, Miss Fancy Brigade. We also have Shania Akila and Abdul Ali Muhammad, co-founders of the Black and Brown Workers Collective. They help pressure the city to make change. And finally, on the phone, we have Amber Hikes, director of the mayor's office of LGBT affairs. Thank you for being on Flashpoint. Thanks for having having us. I want to start with Shani and Abdul. You two were there from the very beginning. LGBT people of color have felt unwelcome in the neighborhood for many, many years. Why did you decide that last year was the year that we were going to make change in the city? The perfect storm is what comes to mind when I think about the temperature at the time of action. For us, it was a combination of factors. It was aid service organizations, you know, nonprofits that we were both working in, witnessing sort of the policies and practices there that were disproportionately impacting black and brown LGBTQ people. And at the same time, right, hearing from other community members and directly experiencing ourselves, right, the, the culture in some of these bars, right? And so we started really thinking about the racialized policies and practices. And for us, that meant, you know, no Tim's policies, for example, at Eye Candy, no hoodies, right? Who disproportionately wears these things and who disproportionately gets targeted by the state for moving through space in these in these clothes, right? And so for us, it was all connected. Really, after uh, Daryl DiPiano, that audio got released like a few weeks earlier, gone to eye candy yeah. and left Tim's on their front door, right? So when this audio release, we often joke like top 10 direct action <laughs> moments in BBWC history when that audio broke and we held that to, you know, to the microphone. It was the easiest direct action we'd ever that done. That was like a firebomb. I mean, it was like, it really was. People have been saying this forever that these were their experiences. It should not have taken an audio to prove that that was real. 
Yeah, and what was Twitter reaction? Because you know, Ian, you work at a club. I know that right. Taboo is pretty. Taboo uh, is the most diverse yes. place you'll probably find on the planet. I've been working in nightclubs now. This is my twenty first year. Like I'm going, I'm old. You know, go <laughs> way back. We had policies like even at Shampoo Nightclub, there was like a dress code, and at Woody's, there is a dress code. And personally, I never thought anything of it, but once. This started becoming like a thing, then it really brought attention to it, and it really makes you think about it. And with Woody's, I mean, I in 1993, I worked security, and I know the dance floor was segregated at times. There was a direct split. You could totally see it. No one said anything. No one ever did anything about it. It was like, like you know, people couldn't come together. It was really strange. And you would think, you know, people gradually would come together, and, and you know, and things would happen. And now it is, and it's a good thing. Yeah, I know. And Amber, why do you think this issue existed? Everybody knew it existed, yet no one said anything about it publicly. So that's true, and it's also it's also untrue. Let's be really clear that in 1986, community members got together and were documenting the exact same things that BBWC was highlighting then 30 years later. So we talked about the discriminatory dress code policies, the fact that, that people of color often had to produce several different forms of IDs when white folks would just walk right into these spaces. Um, they also documented lack of representation on the boards and organizations, which we haven't quite gotten around to talking about just yet. So why, um, why no so movement, I, you think? There was certainly movement at the time. But what we, what we found was that when these issues were presented by people of color, they were, they were gaslighted. You have community members saying, well, well, I haven't seen that. So that can't, be, that can't be true. I would also say in a lot of ways, the community reprioritized, triaged different, different issues at the time. Um, and, and so unfortunately, these, this very important issue around racism, discrimination got pushed to the back burner for entirely too many years. Because, I mean, I think the LGBTQ community was just working for just right generally as a, mm-hmm. as a mass group. And then sometimes mm-hmm. the intersection issues did not get dealt with. So let's just talk about this hearing because it was packed. It was. So talk about that a little bit, like just what having that hearing itself meant. It was a moment where elders in the community who have been saying this is a thing got to be Mm -hmm. centered. It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting, right? And now you have to listen. There There was a justice in that. For us, that was a win, right? Because the people were winning. At the end of the day, the point is that the community that their voices get magnified. And then after that magnification, concrete steps, changes follow that. Right. So that, I mean, yeah, it was was monumental. And it was a very diverse group of people. And what did you think, Ann, being there? It was great. It it just, it opens up your mind. Everybody was there for a purpose and to, to bring the community together. And it was, you could feel all the anger in the room and all the tension in the room, but you felt like there was going to be something that's coming out of this for the positive. And one of the things that came out was this Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations report and a list of recommendations. I remember when Amber was announced soon after this report came out. How has it been going for you and and what's been sort of done in the wake of of this change? It has been challenging uh, at certain at certain points. It has really been uh, quite a blessing as well. From the office's perspective, this is the first time that we've developed an intentional strategy and priorities um, to address these long-ignored issues. We're tackling access, 
we're tackling policy, and then we're actually changing minds. So that's where that kind of community conversation piece comes in. We're developing leadership pipelines so that people that have been denied access to represent their own communities and really our decision-making bodies so that our boards and our organizations more accurately reflect the communities that they're serving. We're continuing with policy. Obviously, we had Councilman Green's legislation passed at the end of um, council yeah. sessions. Mm-hmm. And we have community conversations. So we started in May with an introduction to the commission. Then we had a community conversation around the Mazzoni Center and the serious challenges over there. And now we're diving right in with race and inclusion, frankly, with, with, the, with the community. And we'll be doing that at the end of this month so we can get back to the community. The community can actually give us their suggestions for what the office can do to move us to this next step. Your reaction as we close this out, how you feel about this and where you'd like to see it go? Um, well, as like a, a club manager and you know, I'm a, a gay man, you know, most of my friends are uh, people of color or they are gay and trans, sometimes we're all that we have. We don't have our, our family support. And we only have about three blocks in Center City that we call the neighborhood that's our own. And we might have like the gay flags that raise up. We might have the gay crosswalks. But that's just, you know, those are like tokens of appreciation. But what's more important is that we as a community feel comfortable around each other and can have this type of communication and all feel comfortable in the same space and work together to make that better. Please believe that at least as the BBWC, we will continue to directly confront issues. What Amber's doing is very important. You know, what bar owners are doing who are becoming conscious of these things, that's all important. And we also need the folks who are going to come along and shut it down um, if we're not living up to the standard that we're now setting for ourselves. And so that's our promise to the community. Thank you to Shania Keela, Abdul Ali Muhammad, to Ian Morrison, and to Amber Hikes for talking about this flashpoint in the news. Next up, our newsmaker of the week is a woman who works behind the scenes for major corporations, but is lighting up the stage. There's always someone that needs an advocate. I'll tell you three ways a fine arts grad turned philanthropist is making her mark. is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one issue that's a major Flashpoint is lack of diversity in corporate giving. Well, one woman is changing that narrative. Tiffany Tavares is the new vice president and community relations senior consultant for Wells Fargo. She's also worked at PICO, Comcast Foundation, and the list goes on, helping to direct millions into underserved communities. She's received numerous awards and is featured in multiple articles. Tiffany, welcome to Flashpoint. I am so thrilled and happy to be here. You have no idea. For somebody who's supposed to be behind the scenes, girl, you are all you are always on, on the stage and killing it. I appreciate that observation. You know, one of the things that I've been really blessed with these a lot of opportunities is people want to engage with me. And I'm really thrilled with that. But the fact of the matter is that my work is based on really engaging with them. You're a Temple grad. That's correct. And your degree is in fine arts. I am the first person at Temple University ever granted a full tuition scholarship for the arts. You know, I've had the the wonderful blessing of my mother saying to me when I asked her, Mom, what what should I major in? What should I do with my life? She said, I have no idea. Just do something that you love. And it's interesting. I have that degree and it was one of the best education, you know, I could ever received. But it's not something I wanted to pursue my career, but it definitely helped me think about what the next steps were. When people think of corporate philanthropy, they don't think of somebody who makes beautiful (laughs) pictures and photographs and is creative in an artistic sort of way. What's interesting, you know, now there's a huge trend of design thinking, right? And Mm -hmm. at that time when I was in school, there was no such thing. So I, I could have chosen to go into a business degree or a creative degree. And I said, you know what? I know me. I'm a right side of the brain person. 
the BFA it is. And so what's interesting is that I started kind of the museum world. I used to have, you know, internships at a lot of local galleries. And what I noticed is that there's always the audience on one side mm. and then there's the creator on the other side. But there's an invisible group of people in between that work to facilitate connecting what the the creative thing is and then the audience for yeah. it. You know, when it comes to funding and philanthropy, a lot of people miss the mark, both on the fundraising and grant making side. And I thought in order to be a really good philanthropist, somehow in my future, that's what, you know, what I would like to do. I also know that I need to know both sides of the fence. So I actually started uh, my career in doing some fundraising in arts philanthropy and then eventually rotated into um philanthropy. There's been a lot of criticism in philanthropy and nonprofits mm-hmm. and charities about the lack of diversity on corporate boards as far as decision makers as who gets what. And you represent that for so many people. No matter what sector you're in, there's always someone that needs an advocate. And I am really thrilled and, like I said, honored and blessed to be a person that not just represents the communities they're trying to fund, but I actually came from that community. You know, I, I was raised by a single mother. I'm originally from New York. When I'm engaging with these different communities, I'm not just simply, you know, coming from a standpoint of either judging them or somehow I'm gifting them in some way or the organization I'm with um, is gifting them. But it's truly an investment because I know that the child that I'm speaking to, I am them and they are me. And I want to let them know that they have a voice. Yeah, I read somewhere that you're the, one of the first people in your family to go to college. I am the first person in my yeah. family to go to college. When you do that right. That's only the beginning of a multitude of firsts. I'm the first one to have a career. You know, that's a huge luxury, the luxury to have options. And I think that that's something that everyone strives for. You've worked for for multiple corporations, I say with multiple (laughs) Mm -hmm. corporations. What type of service do you provide? I don't want to summarize to say help make the community better. But to be honest, that's truly what it is. This is a massive company. We have over 270,000 employees worldwide. And my focus is on the Northeast region not just to ensure that we are doing philanthropy right, but we're also doing it in a very smart and efficient way. So going into communities, making sure that we build up relationships to say, you know, who is doing the best work in education? Who is doing the best work in community development? And how do we ensure that you're not just getting a check and cashing and saying, hey, thanks, Wells Fargo, but we have a number of fantastic team members that want to volunteer and provide services to strengthen and add value to whatever check that it is we do end up writing. There's so many people here that are very civic minded and want to help their community. Mm -hmm. And it's tough. You know, I I tell people, people say to me, hey, you know, I'd love to volunteer. Hey, I would love to serve on a board. Where should I go? Which one should I join? You have to really, really pay attention to what it is that speaks to you. For me personally, I knew I had a drive. You know, I've been in a number of rooms where I was told, you know, you you are going to make an excellent secretary. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to have this pressure of already limiting you before they even know what your potential is, to make sure that our kids don't face that is, is a real big priority for me personally. And I'm just really honored that my career has reflected that professionally. And you're a great public speaker. <laughs> Thank you. And I know we've been on a number of panels I together. <laughs> I, feel, I feel that no matter what conversation we have, it's in front of a bunch of people. And so this is the same case right now. Exactly. And so you've been recognized by a number of organizations. You're just like on fire. If this is my 15 minutes, I, it's it's about what, what message can I put out? When you have that platform, you have to make sure that what you're saying is reflecting me and making sure that I'm always authentic. The thing I'm most proud of is being able to still be my mother's daughter no matter what space I'm in. My final question is any advice to folks because your path is so unusual, it's unexpected, but it works. Well, there are a few things. One thing I would say is to be mindful of the company that you keep. I think we let that flow a lot more than we do other little things. If my house, if my career is a museum, 
what pieces do I want in it? Well, thank you so much. No, thank you so much. For being here. Tiffany Tavares, thanks for coming to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, our change maker of the week is working to transform schools from the inside. We were just tired of it. I'll tell you four ways a student-run, student-led nonprofit is pushing for better education. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week it's all about Herb Ed, a student-led, student-run nonprofit advocating for quality education here in Philadelphia. In the KYW studio, we have Tamir Harper, a Science Leadership Academy senior who started and runs the organization. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, thank you. When and why did you decide to start this nonprofit? So just about two years ago, um, a friend that is also well, a graduate of Science Leadership Academy, SLA, sat down and we were sick of the system um, that continues to fail and deprive Philadelphia students out of a quality and efficient urban education. So we started strategizing on ways to really um, change the system in an innovative way. We went through many steps of going, starting a nonprofit called Education Matters, and that went through and we started to rebrand it to Urbed. Um, which we have today, and we were just tired of it. So give me an example of of what you experienced. So one of our advocacy topics is teacher diversity. I did not have my first black male educator into ninth grade. How did that change you? I always wanted to be an educator, but I was always pushed away because I didn't see someone that looked like me actually teaching me. So now you want to be a teacher? I will be studying secondary education and crisis communications at whatever university accepts me. Amazing. And so tell me what the organization does. Urbed does direct school donations so that they can buy school supplies and other needs to improve the students' lives. We engage in policies, so in the next few months we'll be releasing a state of education report which will outline some statistics, but most importantly have student testimonials from across the city of Philadelphia about how teacher diversity has affected them, the building conditions, how the school reform commission has affected them, and how the school-to-prison pipeline is actually present in the school district of Philadelphia. And then we're working on an advocacy training where we want to go into communities and into schools to teach students and adults how to truly advocate for social justice issues, not just education, but for all social justice issues. And our final one is UE Ambassadors. We want students in every Philadelphia public school to represent urban and really start transforming the urban education system. Wow. Tell me your vision. My vision is sooner or later we won't need urban because By 2026 here in Philadelphia, we want a true quality and efficient urban education. So we don't want building conditions um, that are pretty much not good for the students. We don't want students being suspended at such a high rate. And we want more than 4% of black male educators in the city of Philadelphia public schools. Do you think the students are specially situated to convince those who have the policy power, et cetera, to make change? I think if we come together as we have been doing, we can get some policymakers and everyone else to really pit on change. So what can people do to support you guys? Go onto our website, herbed, U-R-B-E-D, advocates.org. We have a take action tab. We are looking for donations. Subscribe to our newsletter because we'll be having events coming soon. 
If you know students, we are looking for students to submit testimonials on how school-to-prison pipeline, teacher diversity, and many more issues has affected them. But most importantly, we want you to just go out and take action against the broken system. So if that means going to the SRC meetings, if that means making donations to schools, if that means just getting involved in your neighborhood school, just do something to truly change the education system here in Philly. Congratulations to you, Tamir Harper. UrbedAdvocates.org will check you out. Thanks so much. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As the Nobel Prize winning Malala Yousafzai has said, I raise my voice not so that I can shout, but so that those without a voice can be heard. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.